The Business of Agriculture is brought to you by Land Trust. Have you heard how landowners are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use? Millions of outdoor recreators seek wide open spaces for bird watching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Landowners are partnering with the Recreation Access Network Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit landtrust.com/boa as in business of agriculture to learn more. That's landtrust.com/boa. Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason, but you already knew that because it said so in the introduction. As usual, Land Trust is our sponsor. I also want to tell you about Extreme Ag. If you are a farmer, if you are a success-minded, business-minded, forward-looking agriculturalist, I encourage you to check out the work I'm doing with Extreme Ag. That's X, no E in the front of it, extremeag.farm video content, podcasts, all sorts of information that they are doing to advance their farming game using products and trialing out new stuff uh, that you can see the results. They've made the mistakes so you don't have to. Check out ExtremeAg.Farm, who's also a sponsor of the Business of Agriculture podcast. Okay, today got a great episode because we have a great guest. Christy Apple, sometimes known as Crop Scout Christy, my friend. She hangs out with me once in a while. She likes my wife, so she tolerates me. She also uh, is an agronomist. She is a crop advisor. She is uh, a smart lady when it comes to what's going on in agriculture. We're going to talk about the realities of regenerative agriculture. Regen reality. We're talking about the economics of it. We're talking about its adaptation and adoption out here in the farm belt. We're talking about its limitations and more importantly, some of the benefits to regenerative agriculture that maybe you're not thinking of. Regenerative agriculture, we're going to start with a definition, but if you also want to learn more about this, go back to past episodes. Go on to my, uh, my archives. Gabe Brown uh, wrote a book called Dirt to Soil. He's been a guest on this podcast, and uh, that'd be a really good resource. And also, we've talked about carbon and carbon farming on this podcast. Go in and type uh, carbon farming in my uh, search engine. You'll be able to find that, because really, they all three go together. All right, Christy, my dear, regenerative agriculture, explain it. First of all, thank you for having me back. This is my second appearance on your program. I am really, you know, I always enjoy having these conversations with you. Um, you challenge me frequently to, uh, to if I'm going to have an opinion, to explain why. And I'm, I'm excited to be here today. And, and you guys are a fantastic audience, so thank you for that. So to define regenerative... Up to, 6, 000, up to over 6,000 weekly uh, listeners, which is fantastic. Uh, we bumped over 8,000 uh, a couple weeks ago. So we got good listenership. We got good people paying attention to this. And uh, also, I should remind you, Christy, that... If you did FFA livestock judging, you're not supposed to just have an opinion about how you set the class. You're supposed to be able to defend and uh, give reasons. So it's a similar thing with your opinions. You've got to give me the why it's this and the reason. So Fair enough. They also taught me in livestock judging, you're supposed to say a few positive things for every negative thing, or one positive thing for every couple of negative things. When you say, this heifer sucks, that's why I put her in the bottom of the class, and, and, your, and your kid that's showing it's ugly, but here's the positive. Uh, um, your pants are pressed. So anyway, all right. So Christy's here. We're going to talk about what's regenerative agriculture to the person that's just tuning in that's never listened to any of the 215 episodes prior to this. What is regenerative agriculture? 
Regenerative agriculture is very simple. It's a, a concept and uh, implement, implementable procedures on farming application that are oriented to natural biological pathways for nutrient cycling, animal grazing. Uh, there's, there's principles that are associated with that that are geared for um, enhancing the environment or recovering the environment, the soil structure. Um, it can get very, very complicated. It can get very nebulous. Um, it can also get very romantic. And I think where we're at right now with agriculture is we've been telling this romantic story about how great it is. We just don't really know how to implement it. Um, and also we have people in the out, on, on, on the outside looking in at adapters that have already adapted that saying, well, that's not possible, that can't happen. Gabe Brown's a great example of the fact that it actually can be implemented. It takes some thought process. Um, you can't just try one thing one season and expect it to work. It is a process. It's a process. It's a, it's a practice that is not a uh, seasonal practice. It's an every season practice. So here's the thing about um, regenerative agriculture. Um, we're talking about usage of cover crops. We're talking about, uh, we're talking about usage of livestock. We're talking about reduction of tillage, or even implementing almost no tillage, and we're talking about a move away from chemistry. Correct. Okay, so I read Gabe Brown's Dirt to Soil book, and some of the stuff I'm going through, I'm like, you know, this is actually kind of how Grandpa did it. Uh, Grandpa had a mixed-use farm, and we had, you know, we had chickens, and we had turkeys, and we had hogs, and we had uh, some brood cows, and we had some milk cows, and we put manure on the fields. And I'm not saying we did everything right in the old days, because we did a lot of things wrong. Clearly, there's a thing called the Dust Bowl where half of Oklahoma blew into you know the neighboring states. So we weren't doing everything right, but we were doing things in terms of mixed use. Then we got away from more specialization of agriculture. You know, we got away from mixed use. We got into specialization where it's like, hey, instead of you having all this, you're just going to be a hog producer. You're just going to be a corn and soybean producer, and that's very good for the efficiency. But we had kind of left soil behind. Is that an accurate assessment? We, we absolutely did. In fact, you're, you're spot on with the way grandpa or great grandpa used to run the farm. And these are old fashioned principles. These are principles that are implemented by native cultures that were cultivating the ground long before settlers came to the US or to other, you know, to other geographies. These are things that people were naturally doing and the systems approach to regenerative agriculture, implementing a constant cover on the soil, something going growing green on the soil all year round, implementing manures and livestock for grazing and or um, manure application. Absolutely, those play a role because our last 80 to 100 years of modern agriculture has pushed us in the direction of efficiency, which means we want a factory style of production system. We want we want our nitrogen, our potassium, and our, our phosphates to be X, Y, and Z. We want our system to be very predictable. We've done tremendous, you know, advances in technological, um, you know, outcroppings or, or, or understanding how important our hybrids, you know, can adapt to their environments. The reality is if we're not putting other crops into the system, what we're doing to the soil is 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 absent we're seeing a tremendous yield in corn but it's because we're applying more product right it's not because we're taking care of the soil and product by the way to the person that's not a corn producer because remember we get listeners that are like in the canned food business we're talking about ag inputs we're talking about principally npk nitrogen uh, phosphorus potassium and we have NPK'd the hell out of things in places like the Farm Belt here in Indiana, where I am, over the years. You know, I wanted to be an agronomist, uh, too much science, so I was an ag econ guy instead. But I always was a soils guy first. I wanted to be an agronomist. 
And, you know, going back, it was all about NPK, 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 you know, just bash the hell out of it because generally they were cheap inputs. They're not cheap anymore. Nope. We're heading into 2022, Christy, and they're telling me that nitrogen is up 100 plus percent, phosphorus up 70 plus percent, potassium is probably on the same trajectory. Now more than ever, maybe some of these practices matter, whereas we used to just say it's fairly inexpensive, blink the hell out of it with NP and K. Now we're going to have to say, hmm, maybe not. Is it now the time that this is going to take off? I think the input cost being relatively low for the last several years has played a role in and created an obstacle in adapting old-fashioned principles like cover cropping or, or old-fashioned principles like grazing or whatever that may be. Um, it's, it's just so cheap to produce it this way that there really isn't an incentive to try anything different. But I think you're absolutely spot on there. I think this year the input crunch, including, you know, um, pesticide inputs are also in a very similar situation. Even if they're available. Even it, it, even if we can't get our hands on them, there isn't enough of it to go around. So there's going to be some hard choices that farmers are going to be faced with. I know people are trying to buy right now, this fall, for next year's crop inputs, and we quite literally can't take an order on certain things because we don't know what our costs are. And, and that's a, a very, um, we've been talking about this happening potentially for many, many years. I think we're actually going to see the reality of that happening, but I believe it's going to open the door for farmers to want to look at other practices and look at other principles. Um, it's going to give us an opportunity for them to have to think outside of the box. And so that's where that's where some of these regenerative principles can kind of come into play. And for a farmer who's looking to, to dabble his toe in the direction, but isn't interested in the label. You know, I think, I think the, the food labeling that we've um, been experiencing over the last five or six years, especially, um, has caused some people to say, I don't, I don't need a label. I don't need to be a regenerative farmer to do right by the soil, mm -hmm. right? So I think that that's also become an obstacle for some people to say, I don't necessarily need to be a labeled a regenerative farmer to implement regenerative practices and take steps in the direction of recovering my soil or improving my nutrient cycling. The reality is the soil is capable of supplying the majority of the nutrients our crops need mm -hmm. without human intervention, case in point, forests, mm -hmm. case in point, prairies. Mm -hmm. So without human intervention, we're growing something there. Yeah, right. right. So we've gotten in this habit that we are the masters of the agricultural cycle. The, the regenerative approach is that the soil might... The soil biological functioning is the master of the soil. Yeah, it's a living organism, and that's not to say that it could all happen without us, because let's face it, also, you're not going to get 244 bushel corn like we did on the, the field down the road here uh, without the, the human touch. I mean, it's not going to do that on its own. So there is there is that. Um, soil health, uh, you know, the conventional agricultural method, or our critics would call it industrial uh agricultural method has been heavy on chemistry. Chemistry is not bad, but we've maybe overused it. True or false? Yes, I believe that that is true. And and, and I mean, that's there, there's so much research now that's it, that's indicating, you know, issues like weed resistance to our current herbicide options, um, f disease resistance to our current fungicides. I mean, we're, we're growing, we're growing chipping potatoes in Michigan, where I'm from, in environments where we can't manage certain diseases anymore because our tools have been so overused over the years. Yeah. And so how do we get back to the soil balance? The soil microbial uh, populations have this you know, symbiosis that they want to exist in. And when we continually apply something to the soil that damages a predator or prey, what we're doing is creating imbalances in the predator to prey ratios of fungal, protozoa, mm -hmm. um, bacteria, uh, and, and the other soil microbial populations. 
And all of that equates back to something that is, seems to be a hot topic in, in you know, you, we're looking at some news articles today, carbon. It all goes back to carbon. So if we're affecting the soil functioning in some way by affecting that food chain, we're going to naturally impact carbon. We're naturally going to impact what we're doing um, from an environmental standpoint. So, you know, these things are super related. They're very tightly correlated. Um, but how we how we understand and how we speak as a farm community as actually implementing something different is as a, a, a not something they're talking about in the news right now. Yeah, so we did what we did because it was uh, efficient, it made us money, it was practical, it was easy, and it got us yield. I mean, generally, those are all the things that drive anything. And so ag gets this thing from the outside, well, they're doing this, and it's like it's convenient for the New York Times to run sort of almost a hit piece because then the fear factor sells and the evil of these farmers are doing this and the reality is are quite frank that we did what we did because again it saved time it made money it brought in yield and whatever um you know i used the tetracycline example uh i don't grow poultry but i know that poultry 20 30 years ago 1950s 60s tetracycline becomes this very very wonderful antibiotic you put in the drip lines for the water and then the chicken drinks it and then you have healthy bigger chicken that grow uh more efficiently because they're not fighting off disease because tetracycline kept them from getting coccidiosis and various other, you know, uh, bugs. Then all of a sudden you've got all the chickens are immune. Essentially we've, we've built up a tolerance to tetracycline. And then there, there's this issue of we need to take that out of the chicken because now the kids are going to also have an immunity to tetracycline. And so if you talk to the poultry people 25 years ago, like, holy shit, you take this away from us, our chickens are not going to get uh, as, as, uh, as, as well produced because we're going to remove this tool from us. And after about a few years, we completely adapted to it. I see that with chemistry. I see the tetracycline chicken example coming to a soil near you, um, that we're going to take away this thing and we're going to scream bloody murder for a couple of years. Like, how am I going to grow a crop if I don't have whatever the thing is? anhydrous glyphosate name the thing and all of a sudden we'll be fine it'll be a little short-term pain but we'll be fine am i right i you I, like my tetracycline example i do actually that's a that's a a great way of of relating you know what's really happening whether it be weed resistance whether it be disease resistance the tools we already have you know that's absolutely the direction we're going and one of the biggest questions that farmers have is well I can't, I can't make ends meet if I'm not getting this much yield, mm-hmm. right? So, so I propose to you, just like the, the poultry farmers had to come to terms with, okay, we, we may not have as much total yield, but do we have the quality that we need? The reality is we live in the most abundant food supply system in the world. Mm-hmm. There is more food produced here in America than we could ever distribute. Mm-hmm. Our distribution is where we fail mm-hmm. on the, in the food chain right here. So, so it isn't production. And so if we reduce production in, in some capacity by a percent in order to implement a different practice that manages those resistance issues, that is the stewardship that we're trying to go for, right? So there are some there are some farmers that are just completely sold out to, you know, in, in a, almost a religious way to these certain concepts and principles. We don't necessarily need to 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 do that, but if we want a full robust system of food production, it's going to create, you know, some other 
things in the food supply chain that need to be addressed, like regionalizing butchering, regionalizing food distribution, those types of things, which we've gotten away from over the years, right? We work in a very globalized food distribution system now. We went to almost like a hub and spoke system like they do with the airlines, that uh, you fly here and then this is where this big, you know, we go to O'Hare and all that. It's mm-hmm. kind of a similar concept in that you raise hogs and then they go to one of these eight places. You know, right. Indiana butchers the hell out of hogs and Coldwater, Michigan does as well, you know. Like right here, there's, there's all kinds of hog butchers, but if you... If you were raising the hogs in, uh, uh, you know, uh, New Mexico, you would have to ship them, you know, for three days to get them here. Right. Uh, we're doing a similar thing. So, I don't know. You're, you're branching into something different that's not necessarily regenerative. You're talking about a changing of the supply chain or the processing chain. Let's go back to the regenerative thing. Um, it's catching on and it's getting a lot of uh, talk. I see hybridized versions of it coming into play, meaning you don't have to be 100% following Gabe Brown's dirt to soil uh, concept, but you could use implement this, this, and this. I think that's going to happen, and it's going to, again, be driven by economics or availability of inputs. Am I right? But I think both. I think the economics have to are our are, are role. We have to keep a farmer in business. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, there's no purpose for what we're doing. You know, I mean, if, if without the farmer staying in business, we're... We're not producing food, right? So, I mean, yeah, we have to keep the economics in the forefront of how to, to do this. The reduction in inputs or the, the the supply of inputs being squeezed this particular year, like I said earlier, I think this is going to open up the door for farmers that have been thinking about implementing something like this to give them a, an incentive to do that. I'm, I may be only going to get 70% of the urea that I need anyway. How am I going to supply that additional nitrogen? Well, maybe there's a nitrogen-fixing cover crop that might be well-suited for what I'm currently doing. I may need to adjust my herbicide program accordingly but that also may be in limited supply as well so this may be the season 2022 may be the season for these large-scale you know industrial agriculturalists to implement a practice or two that complement their current cultural practices that they can get a feel for how to make this work in their system, right? Every farm is going to have its own signature footprint of how they implement a cover cropping system. A single species rye, I mean, we're getting late in the season right now, but there's still people planting rye. Mm-hmm. There's still people planting wheat, in fact, um, you know, some or, or fall triticale. Um, there's there's some there's some things that can be done, but we don't know how to manage them in in the spring. So what happens next year when I've already had this plan? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't own a roller crimper to be able to crimp it, so I need to use something else to terminate that cover crop. It causes you to to ask these questions that you know so few people in the agronomy space are willing to have the conversation with the farmer. Um, it, it it's it's not their fault necessarily, but. It's a fact that we've raised up an entire generation of agronomists that have learned how to use chemicals and traditional chemical fertilizers to make yield. Not to regenerate soil, not to protect the environment, not to recover soil quality, not to protect watersheds and waterways. Just to get yield. Getting yield. Of course, this is how how you make money, and I understand that. Okay, well, we're talking about regenerative. Um, If you you read, uh, whether it's Gabe's book or just look into other regenerative uh, things that I've seen, you got another issue. Um, Tillage. I'm driving home last evening. And up the road, they're just out there with the lights on, just tilling like to beat the band. And I have only one question, a one-word question when I see that happening. It's November 10th, 8th. Why? Why are we out here tilling this? What do you think when it comes to our tillage? Because I have told 
uh, my audiences. I believe that someday we're going to look back at all this tillage, the way we look back at how uh, in the 1600s they used leeches for medical practices. Uh, what are your thoughts? Tillage is, uh, is naturally destroying the soil structure. We have been classically conditioned to believe that that's the only way to process crop fodder and residue. That is not true. There's multiple ways to process and, and to decompose crop residue and prepare the field for the following season. Mm -hmm. um, so those things can look very different and there's different tools. We use um, stock chop choppers and mulchers that can break that down. What we need to do is engage the soil microbial populations that live on the surface of the soil that are the crop residue digesters. Um, the, the mite seeds, the actinomite seeds, the oomycetes. seeds. There's a whole family. There's a whole family of soil microbes that this is their whole purpose on the face of this planet that we understand is to digest crop residue, whether or not we till it. And, um, and there's 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 counties upon counties upon counties in spots in in Iowa and in in the Dakotas that have never seen tillage equipment in Colorado, mm. and and their per, their purpose for not tilling sometimes has to do with their climatology. Recent episode I did right here, uh, a guy named Justin Luton, who's a smart kid, uh, huge farmers in northeast Colorado. They farm 32,000 acres. And he said because of moisture and because of issues that we have, he's like 28 years old, he said, I can take you to a field that I've never seen tilled, ever. And so tillage has a place and a time yes. uh, in their farming operation, but also it has lots of places that doesn't. My favorite thing is how... Um, because I've understood this, you know, and, and I was the guy that was out there driving the disc and the field cultivator when I was a kid in the Case 1370 because we tilled the hell out of stuff. That's what you did in the 1970s and 80s. But I also now see that it's overdone. It, it degrades soil structure. It creates compaction issues, and it leads to erosion. But there is a time and a place for it in, in, in certain applications. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I think, I think one of the challenges is the no-till, no-yield. People have, in, in our neck of the woods, for example, in central Michigan, many, many farmers resist um, reductions in tillage because they think that no-till equals no-yield, where their practices weren't adjusting to the no-tillage, right? So I'm going to reduce tillage or eliminate tillage in these fields, but I'm still going to use my same fertility program I always have, which is creating stratification, right? So all of our um, phosphates that we've been spreading for the last several years are still in the top inch of soil, which is not where my crop is going. It's going down farther south. What we what we have to do is, if we're going to adjust one piece of this, we need to take a look at the other pieces of our cultural practices that this is going to affect. And so, when I have all of my nutrients stratified in the top, you know, inch or whatever of my soil because I'm no longer tilling, I'm not doing anything else to the system to help digest. Uh, fodder on the top of the soil to help mobilize the nutrients to to penetrate deeper into the soil to activate the soil microbes which is the whole concept if i if i'm reducing the tillage i'm not breaking apart those bonds in the soil um, and releasing carbon back into the atmosphere as a, as part of that process i want to keep that that solid i want to continue building that and the soil microbes will do that work for us but not if we're using the same fertility program that we always have right so these you can't just eliminate one thing or change one thing without it affecting this whole system of, of cultural practices. Uh, by the way, uh, we're going to talk about carbon next, but before we get into that, I just want to point out that uh, my favorite thing is uh, when the industry wants to still kind of do essentially what they've always done, but they have to relabel it. You know, we do that sometimes. We do. Um, you know what vertical tillage is? A disc. Uh, I, I find it interesting. I use a vertical tillage. And I remember about 10, 20 years ago, that became the popular thing, 10 years ago, whatever. And I said, what the hell is this vertical tillage equipment? And I went and I said, oh, a disc. 
well, it's not quite a disc. It doesn't really plow it and throw it. I'm like, okay, it's a disc. It's a disc that's a little bit cantilevered. Okay. Um, <laughs> carbon. Uh, we've talked about it on this podcast. I read the articles. I, I have friends that uh, ask me about it. I'm not the expert. Uh, carbon's good for the ground. Carbon Putting carbon from the air into the soil is actually good for everything. Good for the environment, good for the soil, good for the crops. Um, does regenerative do a better job of capturing carbon? Presumably it does if you got crop if you got a cover crop out there because they don't bare soil. Presumably it does, but but again I go back to is the label the most significant thing? I I beg I, I say no. I, the, the label of regenerative isn't the goal. I, I'm not in the business of trying to become a regenerative farmer. I'm in the business of trying to be a farmer that is running a prosperous business that is still taking care of the soil and I think if we can wrap our heads around how to how to do that that's where we need to go this is where the carbon conversation gets a little muddy in my opinion because we're we're trying to utilize a, a way to monetize it way to monetize the carbon sequestration mm-hmm. um, when when the reality is carbon is the currency of the soil we, we that's need in your, that's in your notes and I say oh, carbon's also uh, it's currency of soil but it's also this hot thing and right now it's wide open. I have had investor friends ask me about what the carbon thing looks like for ag. And I said, I don't know. I can tell you that I know a guy that's getting some money from a corporation through a third party intermediary to do certain practices or already did practices and he's getting that money. Good for him. But nobody's coming banging on my door. We have 280 acres of land and 60 of it's in the woods. My God, it's capturing all kinds of carbon. Ain't nobody giving me any money for that. So I see it as the Wild West. I see it as this odd-ass thing right now where it's like, I'll take the money. I'd gladly take the money. Do I want to sequester carbon? Sure, absolutely. There's 92 acres of alfalfa right here, 100 feet from where we're sitting. Yeah, I'm not going to need money for that. Are we going to start getting money for this? And is it going to require us to do more regenerative stuff? Probably yes, right? Probably yes. I think one of the where the market, I think, as on a global scale, is going is these large food producers, particularly, are interested in the regenerative story, right? So, if I'm a, a company like a Nestle or um, you know some of these large canneries that are are putting beans in cans and, and selling them through distribution channels into the grocery stores, they want to know that those beans were grown in a way that is safe and healthy. And now adding in, in the current, you know, in the current uh, hot topics realm, we want to know in a way that is environmentally sustainable. And so what sustainability looks like, in my opinion, should always be, you know, if a business isn't sustainable, um, you know, it's it's not just environmental impact, but it's also economic impact. So if raising these beans causes me to have an economic detriment, then that's not sustainable mm-hmm. at all, um, regardless of what my environmental impact is. So if we can, if we can, you know, get get farmers, you know, talking about this and implementing these practices, going up the food chain. Food buyers are looking for these regenerative stories, these regenerative narratives that say, yeah. I can trace this all the way back yeah, so that's to gonna, the field. You think it's going to be, uh, you know, all the thing with the consumer used to say, I want to know where my food comes from, which really means just tell me a good story so I can go home and feel like I'm a great person, you know, while I turn on, uh, you know, uh, the TV. There's now really going to be this issue where, like using Nestle as the example, is going to say, Oh, no, we really do have traceability on where this uh, the cocoa comes from or what have you. Or apples for baby food. That, that All of that already exists. If you're a vegetable or fruit producer mm-hmm. and you're selling to Nestle or, or any of Nestle's channels, for example, 
you're already doing that. Mm-hmm. And now we're, what they're doing or asking the farmers to do is add this part to the story, add this part to the traceability. And that is these were produced with um, practices that are regenerative and, and improving soil quality or whatever that may be. Um, whether they're specifically monetizing that just yet or not, I don't know because I'm, I myself am not a producer. Um, but I do know that this is part of these, you know, more of a global agenda to that. And I think that's true in, in protein production, in the beef yeah. space, and in the pork and poultry It's as actually well. kind of, it's, uh, it's not right, but it's going to be this hard lash on food because we keep seeing the article. BBC, which leans a little bit hardcore left, frankly, I think, uh, has a big thing in there that half the world's land is used for agri- for food production. I'm like, um, I'm not sure that's dead on. Of course, they would capture grazing lands and all this kind of thing. But anyway, and it talks about this huge environmental impact. The food production is responsible for 37% of greenhouse, you know, all these kinds of things. Remarkably, like, they never go after Nike. It's never, uh, you know, because I guess Nike, um, you know, has 11-year-old kids stitching their shoes together. But as long as they keep running uh, ads with uh, Colin Kaepernick, uh, it's okay. Um, but remarkably, we're going after this thing, and it really is going to be this traceability. I have said that I think there's going to be more and more of a, for you to have a license to sell, you know, it's already happening on specialty crops, as you say, you're going to have to adhere to certain standards, like it or not, uh, whether it's Cargill uh, or Nestle or just name the ADM, name name any of these huge companies, Walmart, Land, Walmart, Land Land Lakes. you know, Walmart uh, sells more groceries than any other country, you know, company in, in the United States of America. Uh, if Kroger and Walmart uh, and Costco essentially then decide, hey, here's going to be our standards for you to have your stuff on our product, it'll go back chain all the way to the production. Is it going to be soil conditions? Is it going to be how you farm? Or is it just going to be how you, it's already how you treat your animals. They're already doing that. It's, ar- it's already how you handle your apples. It's already how you treat your animals. And yes, I believe that eventually this will relate back to soil. So producers that may be generating inputs or, or like, uh, you know, your, your grain farmers here in the, in the heart of the Midwest, that all of, all of what they're producing isn't going to our table. All of what they're producing is going into our, our protein production systems, mm-hmm. right, for the, by and large. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the byproducts go in different directions. But, yes, I believe that a focus on soil practices is going to become larger and larger and larger. Um, you know, every time every time we have these conversations about climate change, every time you hear the the term cri- climate crisis in the media, it's not that that you have to be a believer or a denier. The reality is, this is the narrative that's being put in front of us. We as an agricultural industry are going to have to respond in some way, shape, or form. And how we do that, I think, is is in ways that make sense and make money. They have to make both. We can't do one thing that doesn't make sense because it won't make money. Mm-hmm. And so it, dabbling in regenerative practices, I think, is a great way to start. I would love to, you know, I would love to see farms that are are putting more energy into that. But where do they start? There's, like I said, there's, there's farmers are turning to YouTube mm-hmm. to understand and grasp these concepts because it, it, at the agronomic level, they're not getting good coaching. Our agronomists, by and large, are selling them their fertilizer inputs. And so there's this like juxtaposition. Not there. being mean to any agronomists that are listening to this. I am that agronomist. But we should point out that she's right, and I, I was going to be an agronomist. Uh, we talked about all the soil science, which is great, but then what an agronomist does a lot of times now is it doesn't advise on um, uh, on regeneration. Doesn't re- doesn't advise on uh, soil health. Doesn't even necessarily advise, unfortunately, on soil preservation. You know, uh, it's more about 
getting the most bang for your buck and how what what applications, what products. Usually it's about buying products and putting it on there. And that's what a lot of grandmas do is advise on buying products. Um, <clears throat> and that's no knock in the industry. Like I said, I am that agronomist. I've been in that space for a long time. I mean, my, my husband and his business partner, we built an ag retail, so that was our business. Selling right? products. Yeah. Selling products. But through the course of that, not having the background in agronomy that I did when I started out, it, I didn't have these predisposed ideas and concepts right. of, fer, of fertility application. I was firstly looking at soil quality. That that's how I built my whole entire agronomic career was focusing first on soil health, mm-hmm. and so I mean going back years and years, and so uh, that has helped me to keep an open mind and also the clients that I'm directly consulting for to always be putting in front of them concepts and ideas that help to restore plant health, to encourage root exudates, you know, to encourage um, reduction in tillage or minimizing soil disturbance if possible, whether that be in a conventional farm, organic transition fully regenerative. I work with farmers in all of those spaces, yep. in, in specialty crops as well, and permanent crops. So the, it, it, it can be done. <clears throat> okay, well, your, your my assessment on tillage, it has a place, but it has it's, it's, it, needs, it needs to be done about one-tenth as much as it's being done in places like the United States right now. Agreed. Um, uh, it breaks my heart to go, uh, you know, I, I go through Minnesota in the wintertime, like, I see these beautiful prairie hills, which are going to be, well, they're becoming less hills because they're being washed away. But the, the reason they till it is so that it gathers that heat starting in April so they can go out there and plant because you turn that black soil up and it catches solar, uh, you know, energy. Uh, energy. Anyway, carrot or stick? Uh, regenerative. I think certain aspects of regenerative are going to be continually adopted because it, it makes sense and it's, you know, it's good for the ground and what's good for the ground, good for the asset. As I always say, you know, they're selling, selling ground around here for $9,000 an acre. Why wouldn't you do everything you can to protect that asset? But is it going to be a carrot or stick that pushes some of these practices even more? Is it going to be that there's the economic benefit of carrot or is it going to be uh, the Biden agenda is telling us we're going to do this for uh, the pledges we just made in Scotland for the uh, climate summit. Carrot or stick? I think the agricultural community generally resists rules <laughs> and being told what to do. Mm-hmm. Am I mistaken in that assessment? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think proactive adaptation of regenerative practices mm-hmm. is going to be much more effective so that the carrot can be the can be the USDA uh, programs yeah. and or private enterprise now saying we will give you a bonus or we will not buy your product if you don't I mean yes. that still is carrot yep. kind of yep. we will buy your product and give you a little bit of a bony benefit if you're doing this this and this right or USDA says this this program and we'll pay you to do so well, and I think the, the stick approach is, you know, more like, you know, the, the beatings will continue until morale improves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that doesn't, in, in my opinion, that doesn't incentivize things because when government programs kind of step in and take over and say this is this and that is that, what is required of the farmer, of the agricultural community, is more and more and more disclosure, less and less and less privacy. And I think also the agricultural community is somewhat resistant to that type of vulnerability as well. And it's not that there's anything to hide, but but our, our country is, is, the foundation of our country is built in the agricultural roots. 
and the, the farmers are the stewards of the land mm-hmm. and, and, and the gatekeepers of that. And so when somebody comes in wagging a finger telling you this is this and that is that, I think there's generally a resistance. I think that's been part of the obstacles to adapting specific practices. Now, I know many, many farmers who have dabbled in this and are trying to make sense of how to implement this without telling the neighborhood, without without going you know out on social media and saying, Hey, what? Look at me, backpack me, you know, uh, gold star me because mm-hmm. we're doing, you know, we're putting in rye this year. It's because they generally want to stay in business. Mm-hmm. They want to stay relevant. They want to do better for their soil. Mm-hmm. And when, when once a farmer gets one or two seasons under their belt of implement, implementing some type of practice, interseeding, multi cropping, cover cropping, something like that, it's very, very empowering, and it opens the door for the next phase of that to happen. You don't walk into a farm, flip a switch on a wall and say, okay, folks, today we're regenerative. Yeah. That is not happening. Um, but but over time, small <laughs> changes make big, big, big impacts. Yeah. So like things like you're saying, uh, all of a sudden, if you're laying off a tillage and you're doing a couple other things, all of a sudden you'll have more porosity because you'll have more earthworms. And then and some of this is counterintuitive. You know, if you told the average person that's grown up in the industry, like, by not tilling, you'll enjoy, you'll, you'll, I'm sorry, you'll get greater porosity, greater water filtrate, infiltration. Well, no, no, you got to go out there and you got to rip it and you got to chisel it and you got to bust up that compaction layer. You got to till the shit out of it. That way that water will get down in there. And so it's, it's counterintuitive to what we've always thought. Is that going to be the biggest issue? Is it going to be just the matter of it's counterintuitive or is it matter that they're fixed in their head? Like I've got to do this because this is how I've always done it. Oh, I think both. I mean, farmers have resisted because they know how to make yield. Mm-hmm. And we've also, like I said, we've been classically conditioned. When the bell rings, we salivate, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the old experiment mm-hmm. of, of how, how do you get somebody to continually do something you want them to do? You train them and you properly incentivize them to make that happen. And then and then slowly you no longer have to do those all the things. What I would love to see or where I see this going, especially in the Great Lakes region, you know, we're farming in one of the largest natural freshwater reservoirs in our world, in our on our planet. So, you know, the, the responsibility for us in agriculture as we we farm these areas that have runoff and, and watershed into these Great Lakes is, is to have that water be cleaner and have less soil residue and, and take less things with it out into the water. Mm-hmm. We want water to go in, feed our crops, and get out into the watershed. And, and so in order to make some of those things happen, participating in farmer-led um, groups, I think, has been very successful in, in the Great Lakes. That's huge for us. Um, farmers that are already implementing something that has an interest in, in talking to other farmers about that and just saying, hey, this is where we started and this is some of the challenges we have. Mm-hmm. Creating networks of communication and cooperation in the ag community is, is I think, the, the very best place to start because what's going to start happening is it's going to be regenerative versus conventional. It doesn't need to be that No, way. I, I agree. And I said that in my book, Food Fear, by the way, dear listener. That's this one right here. If you have not picked up your copy, it makes a great gift. And we're heading into the Christmas season. And there's no supply chain issues with getting your copies of Food Fear because I actually, my company, will do the distribution. So DamienMason.com, pick up your order. And if you want a bulk order, buy a whole box of them, give them away to your clients. makes a great gift. It's also very unique. I talk about that in this very book. I talk about the future where I say... Organic, regenerative, conventional all come together. They all merge into one because, again, lose the labels and just do what is good for the ground and what's, you know, what's good for the ground is good for you, good for us. Uh, drawbacks. 
We called this Regenerative Reality. That's the title of this podcast. There must be a drawback. What's the drawback to regenerative? I can think of a couple. Yeah, so so in my opinion, I think one of the biggest drawbacks to implementing regenerative ag is how do I monetize this? I am used to planting this, doing these practices, and getting XYZ yield. Mm -hmm. um, in regenerative ag, you are working with a biologically diverse, dynamic environment. Yeah. You, may, you may see a pause or a reduction in your yields as you're implementing certain practices. That's why I recommend starting slow. Take one thing at a time so you can take a look at, does this fit for me? How does this impact the bigger picture? Um, another drawback that I see is if I'm going to produce, you know, specific like um, a millet or a, a barley, yep. for example, or spelt um, with regenerative practices, who wants to buy my regenerative spelt? Yeah, right. Where, where do you go with the so there? Marketing. I, I, I'd say the drawbacks are first off, if you go full tilt and then uh, it doesn't work out, so you should start probably you know incremental, right? Mm -hmm. But also. You're changing practices. Change is hard. But also, you might need to change the equipment that you have. And yeah. you also might need to change your timing. All of a sudden, you're talking about putting a cover crop out. So that's going to require a certain amount of days to get germinated, you know, in this climate to do that. So you're going to be changing your practices as well as some of your timing. Um, drawbacks. There might, in the short term, be a yield deduct. So yeah, you're getting the uh, you're improving the asset, which I think you should bear in mind. You're getting your soil is getting better, your your farm is getting better. It's just that in the short term, you might take a little haircut on actual return that first or second year, right? That's that's possible, but but bear in mind that this is a long game, mm -hmm. right? This is this is a nine inning game, and so we're, we're not we're not counting all the eggs before they hatch. Yeah, right. And and so I think too, when we when we take soil health. Uh, uh, focused practices and implement them on a single season, it's unfair to judge them on that single season. What we need is time for that soil to recover and to be stimulated to an, a point where we can actually get nutrient cycling back engaged. Yep. It does not take very long. Last thought then on that, and by the way, uh, not only can you check out Christy, uh, Crop Scout Christy on social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, she's all over the place, and you can find her through me if you don't uh, already uh, follow her. She's good stuff. And she usually on social media doesn't use as many sort of cliche-y jargon type things as it's a night-inning game, and uh, uh, what did she also say there? Uh, uh, she, she had a couple of them right there. It's a night-inning game, and... Uh, you know, beatings will continue. All those things. All right. Eggs and chickens. <clears throat> yeah, chicken. Don't count your eggs for their hatch. <clears throat> okay, last thought. A lot of regenerative employees livestock. And then there's folks out here saying, I don't have a beef herd. I, I don't I don't have uh, chicken litter. Um, what, what are we going to do there? Now, I mean, they use, the regenerative uses more manure and then also... Uh, uses livestock and grazing models and all that kind of stuff. So does it work for you if you don't have livestock? You can make regenerative work without livestock, um, but you, you really need to be strategic about what your nutrient sources are in order to not have a ne negative impact on the soil microbes. I will, I will challenge any farmer that tells me, I don't have livestock so I can't get manure. Right. There's somebody in the county yeah. that has livestock. Somebody down the road has and, manure, and, right. and so this is where the collaboration amongst farms comes into play. In fact, yeah. I, I have a, a, a relationship with a, a farm in, in southeast Kansas. Um, they don't currently have livestock. They're a large acre farm, 10,000 plus acres. Um, they have a relationship with a farmer nearby mm -hmm. where they put up temporary fence and paddock graze um, their, their corn stubble. And so that's absolutely possible. Um, but, but it does require you leaving the farm 
and building relationship with somebody next door to you or in the vicinity that you are in um, to to have a collective goal. That farm, the the that livestock operation needs to get rid of manure, um, or they're trying to grow cattle on graze. That happens, and and there's an interest there. But a lot of times, it's this farmer saying, "Well, I don't know anybody," and this farmer saying, "Well, I don't know anybody." The reality is, we just need to talk more as as an industry yeah. and build relationships with each other to to make those things and happen. There's, and there's enough there's enough positives about it, uh, you know, even without manure. Although the manure part absolutely. helps. Absolutely. Uh, you know, some people call it manure. You call it more manure because you're a Michigan person. I call it manure, and it's what it's manure. And I said, there's no ew in it. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I I do know of several farmers that are implementing regenerative practices that are st- still using urea potash and map. They're still using herbicides. Yep, right. They're still implementing <clears throat> regenerative practices. So I don't want to label um, or, or or put people in a pigeonhole as far as uh, I can't be regenerative yep. because I'm this or that. If you're looking for regenerative certification. Yes, there's a book, there's a Bible, there's a manual. Yeah. You can get it. Um, check the boxes, and, and then what? Yeah, and then you don't have to. And you, and you don't have to do all that stuff. You can be, you can be, you know, sort of uh, a little bit. You can be a, you can be like a cafeteria Christian, right? You can go through and pick up, you can pick, pick up which, which, pick up which, whichever practices you like. All right, anything else that these folks need to know before we get out of here? Um, if you have interest in learning more um, specifically about regenerative practices, there's a couple of events going on um, throughout the Midwest over the next several months. Um, I highly encourage you to follow Continuum Ag on social media. Um, Soil Regen um, also will is 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 a hub for um, like-minded individuals interested in implementing practices, getting you um, off the ground. Where do we find Soil Regen? You can find them on it's agsoilregen.com. Um, you can find agsoilregen.com. You can find Continuum Ag uh, Mitchell Hora. He's the host of Fieldwork um, Field Talk uh, podcast. He has been shining a light on regenerative practices and also highlighting farmers who are implementing these things over time. That I have a personal relationship with these folks. These are um, great resources to help get you plugged into, you know, where do you take this game next? So um, as you explore if regenerative is going to work for you, whether or not you can ever sell a carbon credit, um, taking care of the soil should be your priority number one. So. Sheesh. I agree with everything she just said. So check out those websites. Also check out extremeag.farm. That's extreme without an E on the front of it. Extremeag.farm. Check out the good work I'm doing with those guys. You're talking about soil uh, health. Uh, We have a whole thing with them where I talk about implementing no-till. Lee Luber is one of the founders of Extreme Ag. 17,000 acre operator in Gregory, South Dakota. Never tills. Uh, Talks a lot about the porosity through earthworm, you know, et cetera. So you can check out their stuff as well as my stuff as well as hers stuff so you got winter coming up you're going to be a little slower check out all these sources also follow her her name is christy apple otherwise sometimes known as crop scout christy i'm damian mace until next time thanks for being here thank you damian share this with others because it's some good information it's the business of agriculture this episode of the business of agriculture was brought to you by land trust Landowners, just like you, are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use. Millions of recreators actively seek wide-open spaces for birdwatching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Owners of farm and ranch properties are partnering with Recreation Access Network Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit landtrust.com/boa as in business of agriculture to learn more. 
That's landtrust.com slash BOA.